coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, why the internet needs its own version of cancer researchers bypassing chip and pin protection, and the 2016 Pony Awards from Black Hat. Then it's your great questions, our answers, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 279 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on August 4th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and iX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, that's made possible by the powerful Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher. It's Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hi there. So guess what, Alan? I'm pretty excited because there's a lot of DEF CON stuff to still break down. Well, Black Hat DEF CON. Yeah. DEF CON's on my mind, but yeah. Yeah. And so I, I, every time I love parsing through the stories that come out in the TechSnap program. And so uh, we have a good selection, plus the feedback today is looking really good. There's a couple of questions that I've been wanting to get to now for like two weeks that Mm -hmm. finally made it into the show. We'll be answering those. So you want to just kick it off with our first story? All righty. Well, we have uh, Dan Kaminsky saying that we need to fix this internet before it breaks. (laughs) That's bold. Again. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So he says, what we call the internet was not our first attempt at making a global data network. Hmm. Uh, It's actually, you know, just the one that worked. Uh, And if we don't fix it, it'll break and it'll cease being the internet and we will have the next internet and we'll probably call it something silly. (laughs) So really... Since, you know, most of our economy kind of depends on some of it now, Jeez, no kidding. we might want to fix this. Yeah. Uh, he says, there's no guarantee that the internet will succeed. And if we aren't careful, uh, we can really screw it up. Mm. And uh, it has happened before, and we could do it again. Uh, so Kaminsky, who's been, uh, who delivered the keynote uh, for the 6,000-person uh, Black Hat USA 2016 oh. conference, okay. uh, said problems that need to be addressed within the security community are political, technical, and just the way the security community actually collaborates. Uh, you know, for too long, the security community has been about security companies and making money. And at some point, it's like, this is critical infrastructure. We need to... Yeah, know, that's got to be a tricky about one. fixing it, not selling antivirus yeah, there's, software. There's so much reputation and branding and marketing and yeah. all of that that's also at play that mm-hmm. that's got to make that a particularly toxic arrangement. Yeah. Uh, so his big... Gripe uh, is the internet doesn't have the equivalent of the guy that's working on cancer. Uh, we need institutions and systems. We need to have something like the National Institutes of Health or NIH, uh, but for cybersecurity. Uh, it needs to be uh, have good, stable funding. You know, we need research, problem-solving solutions are too often uh, conducted in fiefdoms that seldom share the uh, collective solutions needed to help fix the big security issues of the day. Right, uh, the, the the security research companies don't want to solve the problem for everyone. They want to solve the problem for the people that buy their product. Yeah, so they can leverage that and monetize it. Yeah, right. And that's you know what we need are people that are doing this for the greater good of the internet, not just themselves. Right. The same. It's kind of you know uh, the corollary to the healthcare system is one thing, except for we seem. You know, even healthcare is kind of going more towards this model of we don't make cures anymore. We just make treatments. Absolutely. Take take these pills for the rest of your life and pay us the whole time Mm -hmm. instead of this one pill that will cure it instead. But so maybe the corollary there is a little off. But uh, yeah, is saying that we need this research to happen for the sake of the research and for improving the protocols and so on, not just for selling products. He says, I'm worried. I'm worried about our ability to innovate and our ability to create, and I'm worried that we're not building the sort of infrastructure to make the internet a safe place. Uh, by taking an NIH type of approach, Kaminsky argued, uh, no, that's uh, National Institutes for mm, Health. Okay. Um, Kaminsky argued the internet uh, would foster a large number of deeply committed security experts to work independently and away from commercial interests hmm. and push the security sector to come up with quick, you know, currently the commercial interest pushes the security sector to come up with quick fixes to solve big security problems, not actually deal with the underlying problems in the infrastructure. So he's saying like an institutional setup. Yes. Hmm. Uh, 
So we need to make the changes and we need to have studies uh, about the way we program and the methods that people use to build secure things. Uh, so it says, what I'm looking uh, to answer is, forget the layers of abstraction and politics and all that. How about we get 100 nerds working on a project for 10 years without interrupting them or harassing them or telling them to do something else, right? So that this is not doing, you know, working at a security company and getting to do some research. This is, you're just given what you need and go research and, and solve these problems without interruption and without outside influences about, oh, we got to do this to make money or you need to stop working on that and do something else, right? Uh, and he says, how can we make this happen? Uh, you don't make that happen is, uh, uh, how you don't make that happen is uh, what we have in InfoSec today. And that's with the spare time of a small number of highly paid consultants. We can do better than that. What do you think about uh, like Google's Project Zero? Right. That that's paying a couple of people to work full time, but they're still, you know, kind of directed by Google's yeah. interests and yeah. so on. Right. Uh what you almost need more is, you know, uh money to univ uh well, I don't even know if university is at the right place because they can get too political too. There was Although, the core infrastructure project by the Linux Foundation. Well, that that's not just the Linux Foundation, but but that's that's a pool of money given to for people to work on stuff, but yeah. it's not quite that's more about fixing the problems in specific core bits of software rather than just generic research. But yes, it's things like that. Yeah, that's true. So uh, do you think there needs to be a, a, a entirely new creation of an institution? Uh, well, I think probably something kind of similar to the core infrastructure initiative, but it would need to have even more money and just basically it would need to have enough money that it could guarantee that all right, we're going to hire you and you get to work on this for two years uh, rather than, you know, every four months we'll, we'll decide if we have enough funding to keep you working on this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it would be nice if it was – if there was elements of public funding. So when, when, we, pass, when we pass things like CISPA or CISA uh, and we, we increase funding to certain things like data sharing inside the federal government and, and, and hiring – New new divisions to make that possible. It would be nice if that money instead could be spent on something like this, public yeah. funds find for the public good. Yeah, well, you know, um, the Netherlands did this when they gave a bunch of money to OpenSSL to try to. Oh, improve okay, things there, yeah, right? sure. Uh, but yeah, so creating a depoliticized though is like, well, you don't want it run by the government because the government yeah, has true. what it wants out of it. You yeah. know, it's like, yeah. yeah, so you can research this and this and this, but none of these things because we were using these to exploit things and so we don't want you solving those problems that's no good yeah that, that won't so, work yeah it's it's a difficult problem but it is something that we need to come up with hmm. yeah so a uh, committee doesn't see the national institute of health type approach as a panacea that's going to solve all the problems uh but in fact in his talk he described the delicate balancing act where the security community derives the benefit of broader administration without being hamstrung by political uh controls mm-hmm it says control, greed, and companies driven by profits uh, are what killed the internet of the 1990s, right? You get, uh, he argues that AOL tried to create a walled garden and control everything and make billions, but that internet failed. Is it, there are two models of the internet. There's the walled garden and then there's freedom. The walled garden is, okay, here's your environment and go ahead and try and use it. Whereas the other model is that people can put stuff up and other people can use it and abuse it. People don't need to ask for permission and they don't need to beg. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. You could argue uh, Facebook might be a little bit of the walled garden model too with some success. Yeah, so I would say that if you look at Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft, mm. they each kind of created their own little walled garden and they try as hard as they can to keep you inside of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, Especially on the enterprise side, Microsoft does a really good job with this, with you know SharePoint and stuff. And it's like, yeah, all your components have to be Microsoft, or it breaks down real quick, right? Uh, but yeah, it's like Facebook. Uh, how often do members of your family that use the internet uh, actually end up outside of Facebook, except for maybe a link from Facebook to some other thing? <laughs> to and a, as, to and a click Facebook is is working very hard on having the news content stay keep you inside Facebook and not go out to the newspaper's website, right? Right. Um, and so, yes, they're kind of, or worse, you see like in India, we're like, oh, we'll give you free internet, but you can only use Facebook on it. Mm-hmm. It's, you really are creating these walled gardens. Or uh, also Google's kind of doing the same thing with the uh, Android One phones. They're subsidizing access to Google Play. 
Mm-hmm. So you can you can use Google services for free on the mobile network, but anything else you have to pay for. Yeah. Uh, he warns the same way that AOL's walled garden threatened a free internet in the 1990s, government control over encryption could have the same stifling effect on innovation and uh, cyber liberties. So he says, let's stop the encryption debate. This is actually entirely useless. It's driving all the energy away from what the things we actually need to fix. Hmm. It's like as if we didn't learn from the clipper chip stuff and from the fact that uh, you know all the crypto downgrade attacks that were that we've been subject to in the last two years because of the old export laws from the 1990s. How is this even still an option? But stop talking about it. It's dead. We're just not going to backdoor crypto. Just last week uh, at a press conference, FBI Director James Comey said that uh, the debate needs to continue. That we have to discuss this now because if they, we don't, they don't discuss seem it, to understand that with the math of it, it's it, you can't have secure crypto with a backdoor. They're like, oh, they just need to work harder. It's like you don't seem to understand. Yeah, and he claims that if we don't have this discussion now, that something will be rammed through after a terrorist attack, the next terrorist attack. And that is true, uh, but we, you know. We need to be smarter than that. It feels like there's no conversation to be had, and so there's nothing to talk about, and then we're like, going to just have something forced upon it'll us. It'll be terrible. We know that we, we know for a fact this doesn't work. We, we've, we have proof that if we do this 10 years from now, we will be really, really upset with ourselves. <laughs> right. <laughs> it only ever makes it worse. Yeah, boy, just our news stories alone just bear that out. Exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, Kaminsky's fix-it list uh, was devising better way for the security community to collectively move the security ball forward and not view security solutions as individual races to win, right? Let's take our obscure knowledge and real expertise and make it available to the rest of the security community. Uh, by sharing knowledge and solution, it allows us to find flaws quicker and fix them even faster, Hmm. Right. Whereas the security companies are all in a race against each other and trying to keep everything they can secret because it's all about PR for them, right? Because that's what moves units of their product. Yeah, uh, I agree. And so it's not about having the the splashiest volume with the coolest name uh, or having the fastest fix. It's about actually being in it for the long term and actually fixing the infrastructural problems. Yeah, although I don't know if that's true for a lot of people. I think for a lot of them, it is about having the flashiest name, well, finding the coolest vulnerability. That's what it is about, yeah. not what it should be about. Yeah, that I that I agree with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's going to – I don't mean to make this a soapbox thing, but with uh, so many interests like private companies and governments all over the world willing to pay absolute top dollar for this stuff, it feels like there is this continuous high-pressure incentive – to get a reputation, to get a name for yourself, to get big contracts by doing those things. It, I don't see this really improving right away unless there's... Well, that's why a heavyweight like Dan Kaminsky is sitting there at Black Hat in front of all the companies that are the problem saying, hey, you know, yeah. if, we don't, if you don't want us to accidentally destroy the entire internet, that's a good point. Uh, we need to start acting a little, you know, less greedy. Hopefully they you know, Nobody's saying we can't make any money off this. It's just saying that, you know, maybe we need to... Remember you know, these things are becoming critical. Yeah, and, and sponsor some stuff over here on the side to have some independent research that's available to all of us. Uh, you know, things that are of benefit to all of us and not necessarily the secret sauce of our products mm-hmm. uh, develop that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Interesting. I'm glad you grabbed that. And uh, it sounds like an important keynote, too. Uh, I'll tell you about something else that's important. That's DigitalOcean, sponsor of the TechSnap program. Go over there and check them out, digitalocean.com, and use the promo code SNAPOcean. You apply that to your account, and you can get a $10 credit. DigitalOcean is cloud hosting like you've never seen before. We all know that the cloud means other people's computers. So make sure the computers you pick are damn good ones with great features, a great interface to management, a straightforward API, and data centers all over the world. Their control panel is like nobody else's. It's not just good for an app. It's good. It's not just like a nice web page. It's 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 
it is like literally one of the best interfaces to manage this I've seen, bar none. On top of that, they have a bunch of great apps you can use on your desktop, your mobile, and the web, plug into your existing libraries, because they have a fantastic API that's extremely yes. well documented and lots of code has been written for it. That's one of my favorite features of DigitalOcean. You can tell that their control panel uses that API, and so it has all the features, yeah. and it's, it's they just... They did a very nice job with that. Yeah, they did. They did. I also, uh, I think uh, we've mentioned it uh, recently, but I think it's worth a plug. They've rolled out uh, high availability block storage recently. And like Alan said last week, combine that with FreeBSD and ZFS because they do make FreeBSD available on their droplets. Yep. And they have ZFS on uh, root images available now as well. Oh. So even the, the little bit of storage that comes with each droplet. Uh, can be ZFS now. Oh, man. Yeah. In fact, check, take a look at their pricing. And remember, if you use the promo code SNAPOcean, you get a $10 credit. Try out the hourly pricing. So for $0.03 cents an hour, you could get 2 gigs of RAM, 2-core processor, 40-gigabyte SSD, 3 terabytes of transfer, or $5 a month is another way to look at it. You get 5, 12 megs of RAM, 1-core, 20-gigabyte SSD, and a terabyte of transfer. If you use our promo code SNAPOcean. You get two months for free with that bad boy. Also, DigitalOcean accepts new community guides all the time. They have great documentation. Really good. It's it's like way up there on, on search results these days, too. And so they give you a guide on how to write guides. If something you might be interested in doing, they might be willing to pay you, too. They have staff there that does the technical editing and reviewing. They really invest in this aspect. From top to bottom, DigitalOcean's serious about every feature they implement, and you can really tell. Their entire SSD infrastructure, the 55 seconds or less spin-up time of a rig, the complete application stacks ready to go, the big selection of different distributions, and FreeBSD that you get to pick from. It is truly a great service, and you can support the show at the same time by using the promo code SNAPOcean. Just go to DigitalOcean.com, and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Mm-hmm. Thanks, guys. So let's talk about uh, something that uh, you knew was going to be in the TechSnap news sooner or later, because it's just going to happen. Researchers have bypassed chip and pin protection at Black Hat. Yes. Uh, so, you know, in, they didn't actually attack chip and pin itself. Okay. They attacked the terminals that actually do it. Okay. Fascinating. So the, uh, the payment industry is becoming uh, more driven by security standards. However, the cornerstones are still broken even with the latest implementations of these payment systems, mainly due to a focus on standards rather than on security. Uh, credit card companies, for the most part, have moved away from the old uh, swipe and signature uh, credit cards to chip and pin cards, except in the U.S. where there's chip and signature for some reason. Uh, the technology is known as EMV, or EuroPay MasterCard Visa, uh, which is uh, supposed to provide customers with an added layer of security, uh, and it's mm. beginning to see some wear, according to researchers. <laughs> <clears throat> then, as an aside, I just have a, a link here to a story about how the chip card transition in the U.S. is uh, has been a disaster. Oh, jeez, really? That's a little aside. You can go read that later if you want. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> Just if you want to entertain yourself. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Nir Voltman and Patrick Watson, who are researchers at NCR Corporation, uh, staged a series of malicious transactions uh, live in their talk at Black Hat on Wednesday, which was yes, uh, Wednesday of last week, so a week ago. Anyway, uh, demonstrating how they could capture the track two data and bypass chip and pin protections. Uh-huh. They say, instead of attacking the operating system of the POI or POS device, the point of sales, the researchers bypass much of the built-in security. Uh, this includes integrated uh, cryptographic security schemes. They say breaking crypto, after all, is very hard because cryptography is just math, and math, for the most part, just works. Hmm. But the crypto is just part of the overall security system, and the other pieces uh, are what is vulnerable. Um, this is made even easier since much of the information the team sought in their attack was not encrypted on the payment device. So in their first demonstration, the duo used a Raspberry Pi 3 to capture the track 2 data packets in real time. By a passive man-in-the-middle compromise, Wireshark picked up two interactions from the data entered into a pin pad uh, huh. running flawed production software that's currently in the wild. Oh boy. So the, the pin pad was talking to the other device without any encryption. And they just were like, well, let's just see what we can t- what we can just find by running Wireshark right here, right away. Yeah, on their little Raspberry Pi and holding it beside the device. Uh, the two declined to specify the company's name, but claimed that they had spoken with the vendor and asked them to implement TLS to encrypt the connection. And the vendor said, sorry, we can't. The hardware is too old and underpowered. 
Yeah, it's like, okay, do you realize I'm 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 owning you with a Raspberry Pi right now? <laughs> like, we could use something smaller. It was just yeah. something easy to get. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then uh, even when it's encrypted, it's like the garbled data can be transferred into readable bits. Uh, you get the service code expiration data, the discretionary data, and so on. Data that can tip a hacker off to whether a card uh, has a chip or not, and uh, by if you clone the card, but write a certain value back to the track data, then it will think it doesn't have a chip. And if it doesn't mm. actually check with the bank to know if it's supposed to have a chip, then yeah, a bunch of stuff like that. Hmm. Uh, the pair also showed how easy it is to do the other stuff. Um, so they could do things to trick the EMV into not working and make you swipe the card. And then obviously at that point, uh, you can clone the card's track data and, and just steal the card that way. But if you steal the card that way, your problem is always... You need you don't have the three digit security code. Oh, yeah. Uh, so they injected, uh, a, wrote an extra file onto the point of sales terminal, and now as part of the checkout process, it asks you to type in the three digit code off the card. <laughs> that solves that. How, how how many people do you think at a store would fall for that? Probably almost all of them. They're like, oh, it it it's extra security now, right? It's actually checking that three digit code. Like when I buy something on Amazon or over the phone, when they ask for that code. Now they're checking out the grocery store. This is extra secure, right? Mm. Nope. It's that's that's the the compromised pin pad stealing that information along with your other stuff. So let me note that down. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then the researcher said customers trust pin pads and they usually think uh that it's it's doing what it's supposed to do. Um so yeah, according to the researchers, attackers could compromise the pin pad and inject a form, like they called a malform.frm in this instance, and no one in this well, just do that when no one's looking at the machine and quickly change it back to the customized welcome screen. And they say both uh, Voltman and Watson advocated that pin pads leverage strong crypto algorithms and allow only signed whitelist updates instead of just accepting new files from anybody who walks up to them, right? Mm. Uh, Point-of-sale pin pads are usually PCI certified, uh, but the two pointed out that PCI doesn't require encryption over the local area network, only over the internet. Because they assume the land is secure. Right. Which it almost never is. Yeah, and it, it, it really is just takes that one weak link. Yep. Uh, I think the PCI DSS should be changed to say SSL everywhere, yeah. always. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And that's how... Uh, so then uh, they use the API in the payment terminal to pop up this extra pop-up to make you type in the CVV, and then they can steal your card. But if it's a chip and pin card, it uses a pin, right? Uh, so then they decided they could socially engineer the user. So when the, um, the box pops up and you type in the pin, uh, and it pops up an error message saying, oh, you typed the pin wrong. Try again. And then it pops up the hmm. real pin box that the bank's actually going to use. <laughs> and you type in your pin, <laughs> and it does the transaction. You don't realize that the first box was actually stealing your pin number and recording it along with the data from your card uh, when the skimmer did it. Uh, and yeah, so they're like, yeah, users need to know not to type if if it you know if you type in your pin and it says wrong and wants you to type it again, you probably don't want to use that pin pad. No, that's a good. That's a good tip. That's a bad sign. Yeah. Jeez, um, isn't it interesting, Alan? How just when you think this something's been locked down, you just realize it just takes looking at this problem from a different perspective and attacking it right. from a it's different like, angle. We've seen some attacks before that attack the actual EMV protocol itself, but in this case, it turns out all those payment card processing terminals are tiny things with old software that doesn't get updated, and they're full of security holes. It's like, who would have guessed? <laughs> a bunch of terminals made by people that don't right. care about computer security. It's like, they didn't even have to go over, like, they're not even exploiting the old operating system that's on these things. It's probably full of exploits. They were just targeting the software itself and the user experience of it. But yeah, they say, uh, consumers should never re-enter their PIN. Uh, it's a telltale giveaway that a PIN pad may have been compromised. Uh, Although Voltman added that he usually frequents stores that allow him to pay with Apple Pay as he f uh, finds this technology more secure than EMV because your credit card number is never actually sent between your phone and the device, just a token. Mm -hmm. Or uh, I don't even think your name is either. Right. Uh, whereas with the card, all that's on the track data. Mm -hmm. uh, he says, it's cool, but it's not a secure standard. <laughs> no. uh, this is uh, 
As, as part of their demo, we will include uh, EMV bypass, uh, blocking pin protection, and scraping pins from various channels. Holy smokes. And then I have uh, their slides here, uh, which weren't up earlier when I wrote the story, but when I came back, they oh, had great. slides. Okay. Uh, because this talk was, uh, relative when we recorded this episode, the talk was yesterday. So it's cutting edge here. Uh, and then we have links some uh, some other coverage. Uh, although if you search the topic, there's like every news outlet has jumped on this one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But yes, their slides um, are difficult to go through without knowing what they were actually saying along with them. They're not the type of slides uh, where it actually contains all the bullet points. Yeah, that's for sure. It's more like uh, in-jokes to get people to laugh during so- the presentation. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes for a more entertaining presentation. It just makes the slides yes, less useful. Although the diagrams are, are legit. Yes. yes. Although some of them would actually, you would benefit from their mm-hmm. explanation that went along with the diagram. Yep. Interesting. Uh, I don't know if there will be videos from this or not. I don't know if they normally do that or not. Maybe if, if people see them, could you please submit them to the subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com, yes, so people can check it out later on after we get the show posted. Uh, cool. And also not cool. And really just requires that they do encryption across the land the entire way. That's really all it requires. Well, well, some of them, you know, it requires that you don't let anybody who walks up to the device insert new configuration on it. Yeah. You know, one of the most common arrangements I see is uh, a really crappy, small, tiny network just for the point-of-sales devices. Oh, yeah, this hub, that's for all our point-of-sales devices. And then that just uplinks over here, and this just bypasses the whole the whole LAN, and we have a dedicated connection for that. Well, yeah, sure, but the problem in this case is the software actually running on the devices yep. is full of holes. I know. That's why I'm saying that doesn't work. That doesn't work. But that's the most common thing that I see. Yep. Freaks me out, Alan. Freaks me out. Makes me worry that my my everywhere I go could be a Well, yeah, because some of them, uh, they were showing, like, the, the uh, payment systems built into gas pumps. Mm-hmm. How often do you think those get replaced? Yeah, that could be 20. Well, especially because most of them were probably just replaced to support chip. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they're going to be full of all these holes. And uh, and they're not going to replace them for, I mean, a I gas got, pump? I just replaced that. I'm not going to replace that again. Yeah. Hopefully they're building those pumps to have the computers more modular. But something tells yeah, but, me. Well, it sounds like it's like, oh, we used such a low-powered chip it can't even do uh, SSL. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They often, the things can barely do the stupid video ads they're playing back and all that kind of crap that's all over the pumps I go to these days. You know, that's why things like Ting are refreshing. It's just a totally different look at an industry that's often full of crap and gimmicks. Ting is mobile that makes sense. You just pay for what you use, $6 for the line, and it's your minutes and your messages and your megabytes on top of that. So check them out at techsnap.ting.com. I wanted to mention really quickly, uh, we have... uh, a bunch of great devices on sale over at Ting at the moment. So it's a super good time to go in and get like a refurbished device. And there's also some really nice low price devices like the Kyocero Dura XTP, uh, which uh, is an indestructible phone practically with a week-long battery life and super loud speakers for $63, no contract, only pay for what you use. Ting has CDMA and GSM networks. They also have the Kyocero Torque XT, which is like one of their high-end indestructible Android phones for 83 bucks. High-end in the sense it can take a punishment. Ting is really great, and if you're a service technician and you want on-demand internet, that's a great option. They have the uh, Netgear Zing. It's $6 for the line, and you just pay for when you use it. So you, if you just use it from time to time for emergency support, it's a great way to go. And because they have CDMA and GSM, you can pick whatever covers you best. I think you're going to like it. A lot it. of people, their biggest problem with smartphones is the durability. And so having something that kind of actually lets you have a compromise between the yeah. two. Well, and uh, Noah at DEF CON, um, as we record this, is bringing one of these uh, beater phones with him uh, and not bringing his uh, Android Samsung yeah. device. I, I can understand that. Yeah. You're going to DEF CON. <laughs> and so that's where Ting is super flexible for him, too, for when traveling like that. Yeah, with that $6 a line, it doesn't hurt you to no. have a second phone. And he bought 10 while. Ting Sims when they have them on sale for a dollar piece. For a dollar, they're, yeah. they're $9. You can buy them now, and, and you, know, you, only, you only pay when you actually activate it. Uh, yeah. So he just bought a batch of them, and then he just pops them in when he's ready. TechSnap.ting.com. Thanks, Ting. So, <laughs> the Pony Awards are not like My Little Pony. They're not like like a horse. The Pony Awards are like Pony with a PWNIE awards. And I'm yeah, guessing this is... this Pony somebody, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm looking forward to this. You got a breakdown of the Pony Awards, Alan? <laughs> yes. Uh, so the Pony Awards is the annual award ceremony celebrating the achievements and failures of security researchers and the security community. And they're uh, awarded once a year at Black Hat USA, uh, which this time took place uh, August 3rd uh, in Las Vegas. So they have uh, all these 
different awards. So the first one was the best server-side bug. And this went to the Cisco ASA, which is their security appliance, for its IKEV1 slash IKEV2 fragmentation heap buffer overflow. Uh, trying to remember, if I had more time, I would have written back and talked. I found the link to each TechSnap episode where we talked about each of these different vulnerabilities. Uh, but I, do you remember this one? Oh yeah, uh, it was where you could get the Cisco to eventually execute uh, a chunk of code that you put in a in a uh, IPsec yeah. VPN packet. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So I don't just remember the, the exact. I don't remember the episode of TechSnap, but we did talk about this one. Mm-hmm. A little googly, and you'll find it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the the best server side bug uh, in the last. Yeah, how about year. that? That's something. Look yeah. at us. Uh, the best client side bug was uh, GNU's uh, glibc get adder info, where your a DNS entry could uh, cause a stack buffer overflow. Remember that one? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just just me can SSH into you server makes your server look up my yep. IP address, and if I put malicious data in the reverse. Your machine's now owned. That's solid. That one was crazy, yeah. Uh, best privilege escalation was in Widevine QC Trust Zone. Hmm, a software called Trust Zone that's supposed to control access and it has a privilege escalation. <laughs> yeah, that's no good. Yeah, there's that one. Yeah. Uh, the best cryptographic attack was the SSL v2 downgrade uh, called Drown. Do you remember the Drown attack? Mm-hmm. Yep, that was a big one. Uh, best backdoor went to Juniper for Screen OS. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, they, they actually got two awards for that same one. <laughs> so we'll get to the second one with more detail in a minute. The best junk or stunt hack was remotely killing a Jeep on the highway. Do you remember that one? Yes, of course I do. Yep. Uh, best branding was Mousejack, the one where it could uh, hijack the wireless, wireless. the mouse and keyboards. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, Epic achievement was uh, never giving up and never letting us down. Uh, Travis Ormandy, who's the uh, one of the researchers over at uh, Google's Project Zero, who's been breaking into uh, all the different virus scanners and oh, so yeah. on. We talked about and him holding all the yeah, mm-hmm. all those taking everybody to task. I think he was the was he the last pass guy too. I think. Yep. Yeah. Uh, anyway, because of that, he got the uh, Epic Achievement Award uh, there. The most innovative research was uh, dedupe est machina, which is a memory du- duplication as an uh, advanced exploit vector, uh, which is, I think, mostly about um, software like VMware that dedupes memory between VMs and using that to be able to uh, steal data from other VMs that are on the same host machine as you. Uh, lamest vendor response was Western Digital for the My uh, Passport uh, drives. I don't remember that. What was the issue? There, it's the encrypted external drives, and you could like just trick the software into decrypting it. Oh for you. boy, that does deserve a uh, an award. Yeah, and uh, well, in particular, the vendor was like, "Yeah, we're not going to fix that." <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, we had a whole TechSnap episode about that one as mm. well. It's really validating what topics I picked for TechSnap, isn't it? It does. Yeah, that's oh. you have a good sense. Most overhyped bug of the year: bad lock. Mm. Yeah. That was a lot of hype for not that much of a deal. Yeah. Uh, then they had the best song. Uh, somebody did a <laughs> spoof of Chandelier and mentioned about Cyberlayer. <laughs> I see, I see. <laughs> wow. Okay, very good. <laughs> uh, then the award for most epic fail was not awarded. What? Apparently there was no epic fail in the last year. Oh, well, I still think that Juniper one's pretty good. Well, the, 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 there's another award for that one coming up. Oh, there is? Uh, the Lifetime Achievement Award went to Mudge, uh, who did Loft Crack. That's good. Uh, which Speaking we were talking about last, Yeah, last yeah. week, yep. Uh, and then crack. went on to, uh, you know, that he testified in front of Congress about how everything is terrible. And voting and machines then, are awful, right? Didn't he? Yeah, and then uh, uh, eventually parlayed that into being the head of DARPA's cybersecurity program. Well, hey, there you go. Uh, and then did, you know, the obligatory stint at Google and the security team and then on to other things and so on. And then, yes, the uh, Epic Ownage Award went to the Juniper backdoor. Uh, good. They got, they, got, they got double awarded. <laughs> That's good. Well, yeah, so uh, the worst backdoor was an award to Juniper for having the worst backdoor. And then the Epic Ownage Award was award to whoever... You know, they, they don't know who it was. They just put some badass motherfucker. I got you. Uh, but this award is actually to the people that, that did the backdooring. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so that's why there's two awards for that. That's awesome. Uh, and then, so oh, if you go over to the Ponies website, they have, uh, there was like, uh, they picked the top five to be the nominations for each category. Uh, so for a bunch of them, you can see some of the ones that didn't win, like uh, Image Tragic, Stage Fright. Uh, interesting, the hmm. uh, FreeBSD one made it in there. Uh, the set F key, which is a vulnerability in the the keyboard driver that was introduced in 1999 and only solved uh, <laughs> uh, the other day. Yeah, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> um, uh, Symantec giving Blue Coat the SSL intercept appliance a intermediate CA, uh, which is really oh yeah, bad. good one. Uh, the whole report on those the insecurity of self-encrypting drives, which had partly included that uh, Western Digital one. Oh, the Galaxy uh, Edge baseband stack overflow. Yep. Uh, the 60 Minutes episode about hacked phones where the phone was already hacked before they gave it to them, and so yes. it was all bogus. Uh, or uh, for the um, the best marketing, uh, which we uh, end up going, best branding went to Mousejack, but uh, runner-up was Backronym. Do you remember Backronym? I loved which, Backronym. Just because it was making fun of the whole yes. having games for vulnerabilities. That, that uh, deserves some recognition. Being a backronym, and they actually made the, back, the word backronym a backronym about MySQL was pretty amazing. So yeah, that was the, uh, the ponies this year, and uh, that was pretty good. I, I like that they also call that 60 Minutes for that hacked phone piece, because that was such crap, such trash. Yeah. That's good. You know, uh, it's nice, lighthearted. You get a, little, you get a little picture of a pony as your award. That's, well, that's, no, it, there's like actually gold pony statues. They give them? Oh, they do? It's not just the picture of it? Gold statues. This year, anyway. <laughs> I would I would treasure that in a in a weird perverse way. I would actually well, remember some of these went to researchers for good work. Absolutely, yeah. Not the, you know the one to Juniper. Yeah, <laughs> you know, going to treasure. I that hope one. I well I hope they take that home uh, to their offices, put it up there, and remember what they've done. And I hope they never make that mistake well, again. In this case, it wasn't necessarily something they made a mistake, right? I don't. The Juniper one was they found the code in the repo and like who put that there? Uh huh. Okay. Right. Um, geez, I kind of wish I could have attended that. That looks like that would have been a lot of fun, spe- specifically when they were rolling out the awards. That have mm-hmm. been that have been a blast. Any yeah, other so thoughts? I managed to get uh, uh, somebody tweeted pictures of a bunch of the slides from the awards, but not all of them. So that's why they're kind of sporadically linked. That's yeah, nice that you put them in there, especially for the audio folks if they want to see. Well, something. In, in particular, it was uh, when I was writing this last night. The Pony website didn't have the results yet. So all I had was the Twitter stream. That's, um, That's interesting. This morning when I sat down, the website had been updated, and I could fill in the couple that the guy didn't get a picture of, or like the Juniper one, the picture was too blurry, and I couldn't read it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what? Speaking of high-end hardware, because let's, let's speak about high-end hardware right now, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. High-end hardware built for your workload powered by incredible Intel processors. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap not only supports the show, but it's where you go to get a white paper to learn more about IX and maybe move things up the chain to switch over your purchasing chain to IX, where you're going to have a lot better result, not just with the sales, not just with the support, but with the long-term trajectory of the company. In fact, look at some of their clients over at IX. This is just, this list, it, it really... It's if anybody has, has any questions of what IX can scale up to, this is this is this is the U.S. Army has got to be NASA has got to be. I mean, look at that, yeah. United uh, States but, Navy. You know, if you go in their little thing and go to the company history one and just look at that and realize that they've been around since, you know, BSDI and before, yeah, uh, before the first dot com stuff, and they've survived all that because they're yep. really good at this and they're focused uh, and they've they've been able to build out an incredible team. Yep. And, you know, we dug up some old videos uh, when we got talking about Leo Laporte starting to use BSD on uh, BSD Now two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, we dug up some old videos from the old tech TV before Comcast bought it. And they had Matt Olander, who's one of the guys at IX, uh, there showing off a free BSD box from before IX was even called IX Systems, when it was still called Off My Server. <laughs> I remember that name. Yeah. Wow. And so you go and trace that through that history page there, and it's just like, wow, look at all that And, stuff. you know, part of uh, an interesting part of their evolution has been their participation with the community. And I wanted to mention Meet BSD is coming up in California. It's being put on by IX. Yep. It's November 11th through the 12th, 2016 at uh, UC Berkeley. So uh, check out more information at meetbsd.com. I'm willing to bet... Alan Jude is going to be at Meet BSD yep. California 2016. So you go say hi to Alan, wear your Patcher S t-shirt, get a Tech Snap sticker. 
meetbsd.com if you want to learn more. And go check out IX Systems. It's just what you need to switch over to from your home, small business, storage needs, all the way up to big compute, server jobs, massive data center stuff, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go check it out. I tell you what. I am I am hungry for a new uh, for a new storage setup too. So I'm looking at that FreeNAS XL and thinking, oh, one day, one day, one day. Yeah. And uh, I kind of tempted to go to MeetBSD too. Yep. I, that, that that does look. It's always fun because it's got a slightly unconference setup, so there's lots of uh, just getting to talk to the other people that are there and and uh, break out into breakout groups about a certain topic you want to actually talk about. I, I'm tempted, very very tempted. Maybe I'll end up going. MeetBSD.com. Okay, with the news all done, let's do the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to TechSnap at JupiterBroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Our first email this week comes in from Tim Y. And Tim says, I've managed a few IRC servers for internal use at work, but I'm intrigued by JBot. How does it work in the Jupyter Broadcasting chat room? How does it keep track of show times? How is it able to report on them by simply entering bang next? And how does it parse URLs when they are posted in the chat? You could probably do an entire show on IRC, but in short, could you tell us about JBot's setup, please? Thanks. Love the shows. And I love JBot, too. Keep up the great work. Tim. Yeah. Uh, so JBot is written in Ruby. And so when you type pound next, it actually uh, gets the Google Calendar RSS feed and finds out what's next and then posts it in the chat room. Yeah. Uh, and then for the URLs, it's literally has a regular expression on each line of text that goes by. And if it's a URL, it uh, grabs, fetches the URL with, uh, I think, curl and then uh, checks. What's the title of that website? And yep. spits it in a chat room. Yeah, also uh, it there uh, are like tons the- of different frameworks for building IRC bots. Um, you know, depending what your language of choice is to write it in, and then there's probably a framework. You know, there's ones for Perl, there's uh, lots for C and so on. Um, there are pre written bots for stuff like the Eggdrop is a framework for building bots, although the programming language you write the scripts in is TCL, which is a little strange. But, uh, yeah, so JBot uses the Cinch, C-I-N-C-H, IRC framework for Ruby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, uh, it's all up on GitHub. Rekai yes. has it all posted up on GitHub if you want to look at the source code and poke around how it's done. And uh, you can get a little idea of how it works. It's also what we use to uh, take title submissions and vote on them during the show. And, yep, it has uh, a back-end web server and actually uh, lets you... Vote on the the titles that are suggested. Yep, and also you can you can type in some host names and it pulls out quotes. Uh, we can use it to interact with the DigitalOcean droplet and uh, activate and deactivate DigitalOcean droplets for us. So well, yeah, at that point you get to anything Ruby can do, which is anything anything can do. So yeah, yeah, it is. It's pretty cool. So uh, check it out. All right, Alan. So uh, in fact, if you've never been in the IRC chat room, join us one time and you get to yeah. you'll get you'll meet Jbot. So uh, Ginger Beer writes in about virtualizing PFSense, a common question and always a little bit different of a twist. So I have previously set up a Core 2-based PC as a PFSense router firewall caching proxy and OpenVPN unit that sits between the ONT and my switch. I set it up to replace the CRUD Wi-Fi router supplied by my ISP. Boom! One of the NICs was connected to the ONT using PPOE on VLAN 10, and the other NIC was connected to the switch and became my network's default gateway. This worked well. However, I would like to virtualize this and have attempted using ESXi, Zen, and even Hyper-V by setting it up with two virtual NICs. I am able to set up PFSense, set up the NICs, VLANs, but the WAN NIC will never receive an IP address or connection from the ONT as it would on my physical machine. Do you think this is a hardware or software problems? Any pro tips? Hmm. Thanks, Ginger Bear. I know lots Beer. of people Bear. do it. I've I've done a PFSense in VMware Server because that was free when I used it that long ago. That was a long time ago. Um, yeah, I've had it work too. There's, uh, it's. I guess you're trying to do PPPoE from inside the VM. You might have to, uh, like I know in VMware and ESXi, there's a setting on the NIC. Whether you allow promiscuous mode or not, turning that on might help uh, with that. Yes. Um, 
But if it's not working in Zen or Hyper-V either, I'm sure there must be an answer on the PFSense forums because this would be a problem other people have. I wonder I know if lots of people do it in Hyper-V all the time, although PPVOE is slightly less common. Could the ONT be... I mean, I wonder if there's... It wouldn't be MAC address filtering on well, the DHCP. Well, it can be. Some some devices do that. Like, I know but my he was ISP, able to hook up his Core 2 PC and it worked. Right. Uh, but if it's still expecting that MAC address, it might not Yeah, maybe work. that's somehow in their system. I know my, my cable ISP, I used to have to call them and get them to allow a different yeah. MAC address. To I, did I did, too. I did, too. I did, too. It but that could be that simple. I kind of got rid of that because people change devices more often now. Yeah, so uh, I can tell you with absolute certainty that uh, we have many people in our audience that are doing this, and both Alan and I have tested this. We don't use it in production ourselves, but um, so it's doable. So there, I think mm -hmm. it's something specific to maybe your ONT or your setup there. Mr. Yeah. Beer or Bear, depending on how he uh, I ways. think it might be the VLANs without promiscuous mode might be confusing something. Yeah. or I Yeah. Because PPOE also involves other MAC addresses. I think it might just be uh, make sure you allow promiscuous mode on the NIC uh, in the virtual machine. But yes, I've virtualized uh, P, uh, PFSense before. And I know it will work in Hyper-V because Microsoft specifically wanted to support running PFSense in Hyper-V for uh, the Azure cloud when places want to have their uh, private stuff in VMs uh, on a private network behind a PFSense that's actually on the internet in the cloud. Slick. Uh, so I know that that is supported. Ricky writes in with our next one. Hey, Alan and Chris, love all the JB shows. I posted a question about NFS eating all my RAM in the subreddit a few days ago, but I haven't gotten any responses. My well, main it wouldn't issue, be NFS that was eating. ZFS is eating all the RAM. Okay. My main issue is the RAM is solely used up when web UI shares become and web and UI shares become unresponsive. I did not see this behavior with a different, less powerful machine. We're using the same pool on NAS for free. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Uh, you can limit the amount of RAM that ZFS will use by setting vfs.zfs.arc underscore max. If that's the problem, although uh, you're Reddit post has been deleted, so it, I can't read the rest of the details. So maybe oh, has it? I, have, uh, I wonder why it's been deleted. Who deleted it? Let's I see. don't know. Um, it say. might be because he might have done it because he solved the problem. Oh, no. I, I undeleted it. Sudden, okay, there we I go. just undeleted it so right. we can read it. Because why not, right? So he's got yes. Freenas. Uh, yeah, here you go. He's got 8 gigabytes of, uh, of USB boot stick, two 5 terabyte drives, and a RAID Z1. Two plugins for MB and Samsung. I know. It's, I, I, oh, yes. Yeah, he box. he has DDR3. On the free NAS, he has 8 gigs of DDR3. Ah, there it is. Yes, he got it listed in a funny way. Mm -hmm. uh, 8 gigs is not very much, especially for... Wait, I guess he's only got 5 terabytes of storage, so that's probably okay. Uh, so, yeah. There's a SysDetail setting you can set that um, limits the amount of uh, RAMs ZFS will use, although it normally doesn't kill itself like that. So I don't know. You know, I bet he didn't get any hits either because it got probably auto-deleted because of all the links he has in here. Reddit ah. does that all the time. I only see two links, though. In yeah, eBay that's one. all it takes. Yeah. One of them is to eBay. <laughs> uh, so he says he updated the auto-tuning box on FreeNAS, and it seems to stem the RAM usage. Do you think 12 gigs would make a big difference, though? Yes. Um, oh, are you using... Um, Ah, so he's running out of 9K jumbo frames. Are you using jumbo frames? Uh, yeah, that turned on on the, yeah. Turning off jumbo frames, and I imagine that will yeah, solve... Yeah, because it's specifically when he's transferring like three gig files over NFS. Yeah, so your problem there is actually memory fragmentation. You're not necessarily running out of free memory, but you uh, all your chunks of memory are 4K, and you would need to get 9K of contiguous memory, you would need three 4K pages side by side by side, uh, and... It can run out. So just disable jumbo frames, and uh, you should be fine. You should have no trouble saturating a gigabit NIC without using jumbo frames. And or uh, or just, or make sure jumbo frames are turned on on the other side. Would that also be? Uh, no, this one is okay. running out of memory because his memory becomes too fragmented. Ah, okay. I've ran into this problem before as well. Although not enough, it wasn't enough to kill the machine, but I had uh, 32 gigs of RAM in the machine, not eight. <laughs> but yeah, so just disable jumbo frames, and that should solve your problem. Hopefully that does it for you, Ricky. Hopefully. Because uh, uh, 
I'm glad I noticed that last little update at the bottom where he posted the error message because I wouldn't have figured out that that was the problem because he didn't mention jumbo frames anywhere in here until the very, very end. Key detail always it, does help. Yep. Yeah. Error messages are useful. And that is in that is that post is now public. If you're watching and you have another tip for him, please do. I, I would love to see more people helping out in the subreddit if you don't mind, uh, because we have a lot of really smart people watching and there's you know how it is when you're working on something like like Ricky is right now and you get so close but you just can't quite close the gap and how thankful you are when you finally get that answer online. And you could help somebody with that with that closing that gap at techsnap.reddit.com. Captain Buahaha writes in and he says, just curious, if I'm at home behind my NAT router, and I watch a YouTube video, am I and my Netgear router participating in multicast? Does YouTube multicast out their videos, when I, and when I click watch a video, am I jumping in on a multicast stream with others already in progress? Am I, ju I am just curious as to what extent your typical home user ends up using multicast behind the scenes, maybe for Skype or something like that. Thanks. Uh, the answer is never. Yep. You almost never use multicast. Um, multicast doesn't really work on the internet. Uh, your biggest problem, like, uh, it wouldn't make any sense for a YouTube video because the chances of another person anywhere near you on the network watching exactly the same video at exactly the same time doesn't make sense. Yeah, you got to jump around if for you're, rewind. If you're, or... Yeah, and if you're five minutes behind me in the video, uh, multicast has no use for it. And so if they're only sending to one person at a time, then multicast is it's just unicast. Uh, so multicast mostly consists of a bunch of devices all subscribed to uh, sharing one IP address and the data gets sent to that and it gets broke out. But basically multicast only works inside LANs. It doesn't work on the internet because uh, it requires the cooperation of every router along the way because uh, you know the way multicast works, so if you have... Say all the machines in this building, uh, which are all through switches connected to one router and another router, another router over here. Every router has to forward uh, just <laughs> one copy of the data, but has to forward it all the way through. <laughs> Whereas, uh, you know, on the internet, that's not how it works. So, multicast is only ever used inside LANs. Basically, it's almost never used on the internet uh, because it it's usually isolated to one hop, uh, not many hops. So mainly the only thing that uses multicast is routers use it to talk to other routers that they're physically connected to uh, and share their routing tables. And then that router uses a different multicast on its next interface yep. to talk to the routers on the next side. Yeah, yep. And it hops around like that. Yep. And it's used inside your LAN for a bunch of stuff like you, you know finding other machines that are doing the same thing or whatever. Uh, but especially for watching one YouTube video it would never have an advantage. Uh, the big advantage, if you wanted to do it, was if you're trying to stream video to, say, five conference rooms uh, in the same building, and they're all on the same land and you do multicast, it would mean the sending machine would only have to send one copy of the video to the network, and then all those machines would download that one copy. Whereas if you use regular unicast, I would have to send five copies, one to each room, mm -hmm. and that would take more bandwidth on yeah. the network. Like a lot of the disk uh, imaging solutions I used when I worked at a school district, multicast. Yeah. Uh, but the the problem with that is multicast really only works over UDP. Yeah. Uh, so you have to do your own reliability stuff. Mm -hmm. So I view, uh, when I did an imaging type thing for uh, well not imaging though. So we used to take over the computer lab uh, on the like second Friday of each month at the <laughs> yeah. at the college uh -huh. and have a LAN party. Nice. Did the same and thing. So so the machines were already imaged and the hard drive was like. Uh, they were deep frozen, so yep. if you reboot it, it goes back to whatever. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so we wanted to add the games. So we had a Steam Cafe license, which gave us like all the Valve games for free for the weekend. Um, oh, wow. Basically, we just get 50 different uh, temporary Steam logins that we could use. So I would have one copy of all those, the updated versions of all those Steam games, and I need to push it out to every machine so we can all play that for dead or whatever. And so I used this thing called, I think it was... Um, MFTPD or something like that? I forget the name now. Uh, but it was multicast FTP. And so the one machine would set up and send over UDP at a rate I would have to specify because UDP has no buffering. So you can tell it to send at 100 gigabits a second and only a couple of packets will actually make it through. Um, so it would send out the entire file at a, a prescribed speed. So I would have to, we only had 100 megabits, so I'd send out at like 90 megabits. Hmm. Uh, the whole like 20 gigs of files when it got to the end it would start at the beginning and uh so unlike tcp where you send an ack when you do get a packet mm -hmm. this client 
would send a knack or negative acknowledgement whenever it missed a packet. Hmm. So if it got packets out of order, it would be like, oh, I never got packet number seven. Uh, so the server would compile a list of all the negative acknowledgements it got from everybody, all 50 machines. It would then go through and send any block one or more people had missed, and it would just quickly skip through the whole 20 gigabytes only if we send the blocks that uh, where one or more had been missed, one or more machine had missed them. And then it would do that again and again and again until everybody had all the blocks, and then the files would be done. <laughs> uh, the problem, I, I thought about trying to use it for an imaging solution, but it relied on being able to seek around in the file, which made it a little more difficult hmm. uh, to, to build an imaging solution based on it. Hmm. But it probably could have worked. Hmm. There you go. So that's why you're not oh, yeah. multicasting. So you, yeah. You can run Wireshark on your network and look for multicast traffic, and you probably, other than some, like yeah? some of the like Windows talking to each other to find uh, machines to share with and routing protocols, and, and your switches and routers talk to each other on multicast. But you, you don't multicast over the internet. No, not. No, you don't. Maybe one day. It looks like if Google has their way, Quick will be moving the web to U, from TCP to UDP. So that could be an interesting day someday. But not this day. Yeah. Not this but yeah, day. That's, that's mostly just to accomplish what TCP Fast Open does. Uh, the problem with UDP is you can spoof the from address because there's no three-way handshake. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas TCP Fast Open, you do the regular setup the first time, but then you get a cookie. And you can come back and be like, "I was already here." It's like having the stamp at a club yeah. or at a theme park. I was good. I'm good. I've already yeah. I've already been checked. Um, so if you want to send us your questions, we'd love to get them. Please do go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, pop the contact link, and choose TechSnap from the dropdown, or email us directly techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. All kinds of ca categories. All kinds of categories. Yeah, a plethora of categories you can ask us questions about. How about that? Just send them in, and we'll feature them in future episodes of the TechSnap show. But with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, you made it, and that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show. But we still want to talk about them a little bit with you and give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. Some of these links were supplied. Our intelligence network at techsnap.reddit.com. I think this first one probably came from there. Webcam hackers caught me wanking and demanded 10K ransom. That is a worst case scenario, Alan. <laughs> yep. Uh, somehow they compromised his computer and turned on his webcam, got him doing the thing he was doing. Uh, at first, he laughed at them and said, I'm not paying 10 grand, do your worst. And then they emailed back uh, pictures of a bunch of his Facebook friends and other stalking they had done. And a copy of the video. Yeah, if if they're you know they're on your computer, so they can see whatever you're doing, so they can quickly find you know who you've been talking to on Facebook and so on. Hmm. Apparently, course, Mark yes. apparently Mark Zuckerberg puts tape over his camera and his microphone. Yep. Uh, well, I think the tape over there is actually over like a USB port or something. Well, that's also where the MacBook Pro's microphone's embedded under the speaker oh, okay. grill. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. That is uh, not a good story. So, I so my Logitech C nine thirty E has a lens cap. Oh, well, that's a good idea. That's nice. Although you can tell it's like a last-minute idea. A post-Noden like, post edition? <laughs> I don't know, but uh, I'm glad that it has it. Yeah. Although my main use of it is when I'm traveling with it, it keeps fingerprints from getting on the lens. Oh, that's also very nice, actually. Yes. Hmm. All right, well, how about this one? Kaspersky that Labs. I don't get <laughs> Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, you know what? I'd be, I have to send it to him. Kaspersky Labs launches a bug bounty program. Hey, yo, this sounds like a good idea. Well, yeah, as we've seen uh, with Google's research and so on, every virus scanner is terrible. Uh, well, Kaspersky is launching a bug bounty, uh, and they're not running it themselves. They're uh, running it through HackerOne, okay. some place that Pornhub and other people did, uh, because it takes a lot of the work off you, and you know they've kind of become experts at running bug bounties, so it, it seems like a good trade-off. Yeah, and the more companies that do that, the better for a while. Exactly. Uh, and they're offering rewards of up to $50,000 uh, for you know, privilege escalation and other types of attacks. Uh, in particular, the article also goes on to talk about the stuff they did before opening up the bug bounty program to make sure that, uh, you know, specifically like, otherwise the first 10 researchers that look at this are going to give us three months worth of work. Hmm. You know, it's like, you can't just start a bug bounty program. You have to have already done an audit, done your software That's, development lifecycle stuff yeah. and get all your ducks in a row before you can do that. Yes. Or I guess all your ducks in a V. That's good to think about. It's a good, that's a good thought exercise. Hmm. 
Okay. Well, this is probably something that nobody's going to be surprised by, but it's an article over at Network World saying that Cisco is the one touting that potent ransomware is targeting the enterprise at a scary rate. Enterprise targeting cyber enemies are deploying vast amounts of potent ransomware to generate revenue and huge profits. Cisco estimates it to be $34 million. Yeah, all we hear about is is hospitals and schools and companies paying the bounties to get their files back because they don't have good backup strategies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, this sounds interesting. Bringing HSTS to Google.com. Yes, this is the HTTP strict transport policy thing. Yeah, okay. Uh, did I spell it right? HSTS? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, HTTP strict transport security. Yeah. Uh, so this is basically a header you send and say, this site will always be HTTPS. And, but Google goes on to talk about all the work they had to do to make sure that there weren't still old links that pointed to not HTTPS versions that would set off the alarm mm-hmm. and so on. And how they grow gradually rolling this out by setting the TTL of the HSTS header to only like a day, so that if it does backfire, it only people only get the scary warning for a day and then it goes away again. Smart uh, until they can roll it out, and eventually they'll roll uh, amp it up so that their HSTS is for a year at a time. I think that's clever. Canada Mm -hmm. wants to keep its federal data within its national borders. They've released its latest federal cloud adoption strategy. Now, that's a title. Uh, Now available for public comment. Only Hmm. completely unclassified data, which means it doesn't even contain personal data about any Canadian, is allowed uh, outside the country. Everything else must retain sovereign control. So they figure as long as the data is stored on the cloud inside Canada, the government has the ability to you know, force the provider to do whatever they need them to do. And this is specifically for government data? Yeah. Yeah, okay. All right, this is anywhere the government storing anything. Uh, In particular, uh, part of this stemmed from there was uh, the census, which is uh, legally required for every Canadian to fill out an answer. Uh, The one a couple of years ago, the government contracted Lockheed Martin to run the census. A U.S. company. And uh, so some, I think it was an 84-year-old lady refused to do it, and they tried to take her to court, <laughs> I love and it. she won because it's like, I shouldn't have to give my personal data to a U.S. company by law from the, the Canadian government. Good for her. And uh, the, the court agreed with her. No and before so. has our next story. Uh, the antivirus industry's dirty little secret. What is it, Alan? This is uh, looking at, uh, they compared a bunch of different virus scanners, although... I notice they don't seem to have like the top tier ones like Kaspersky and uh, Trend Micro. Uh, but um, I do have ESET on there. Okay. But if you scroll down a little bit, it's looking at their uh, reactive def- uh, detection rate versus the proactive detection rate. So the higher up the chart the virus scanner is, the better it is at finding viruses that are already known about. Mm. And the further to the right they are, is the better it is at finding uh, viruses by looking at what the app's doing and realizing this is a new virus we just haven't seen before. Hmm. Uh, and you can see that some of the low end, like Microsoft's, is not faring so well, uh, whereas you know ESET's pretty good up in there. Interesting. Avast does better than I would expect too. Um, yeah. Um, hmm. But I don't know that much about the people actually doing the study, and it does seem like they ex- like I don't see Symantec, uh, Kaspersky. Uh, Trend Micro or any of the places that do actual research and that type of thing on the on the list there. They say their products are just still not that effective in the real world. And that's the dirty little secret of the antivirus industry. Yes, oh, you're right. Uh, this is what Apple should tell you when you lose your iPhone. This is too long for us to go through in the in the show, but this is a horrifying story of um, really tricky phishing. So this guy loses his phone. And there's a feature built into the iPhone that you can turn on that allows you to track your iPhone. My iPhone or whatever. And he got an SMS message and an email that preemptively notified him that his phone was found. And it looks really good. That looks like something Apple would do. Your iPhone 6 was found at 18.48 p.m. Uh, You can see location. They have an iCloud logo on the bottom. iCloud is a service of Apple. Buy Apple ID. Like all that stuff. Copyright Cupertino, California. Uh, It looks legit. They also got a text message says, your iPhone was found. Click on the link below to log in to view your iPhone's location at HTTP show-iPhone-location.com. <laughs> when you log in there, it has a very iCloud-looking page. The page is, it's, they just copied the iCloud login pixel for pixel. Yep. Of course, once you log in, you're actually transmitting your information. When you do a little packet capture, you see that everything's being sent in plain text up to them. And it's an elaborate attempt to steal your information and unlock your phone. Because part of the problem with Apple has done with the new iPhones is 
if they get stolen and taken away, you have to, even if you wipe it, you still have to provide the iCloud credentials to actually fully reload it. And right. so, so uh, this way, they can hijack your iCloud account, lock you out of it, change the email address on it. Right? Once they have the password, they can log in, change the email address on it, uh, basically may, give the phone its full resale value again and steal it from you. Yeah, it, it kind of says Prevent here... You from locking, uh, remotely locking the phone and increase the resale value of the phone. He says the 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 uh, he says if you ever lose your iPhone, iPad, or uh, iPod, be extra alert for uh, upcoming identity identity theft attempts. This is what Google.com and Apple should have told me 12 days ago when I searched for what to do. The scam was so professional that with perfect English and mobile responsive web pages, I consider myself lucky not to have given away my password. And yep. as I said, I'm kind of a professional, <laughs> he mm-hmm. says. <laughs> He's, uh, yikes. Yeah, it does look. That, that iCloud login, it all looks really legit. Mm-hmm. Um, you could even maybe show iPhoneLocation.com. You could almost even buy that if you're a, if you're a the new da- user. It, Apple would have been... a done yeah. a better job of naming that. But maybe but if you're not really thinking. Exactly. Most people don't even look at URLs. So, Open source is big business and Walmart proves it. That's Forbes.com. Yep. Uh, so Walmart's actually open sourcing their uh, software development stuff uh, called OneOps uh, and uh, hoping that in open sourcing the some of the stuff they use internally just to run their business but they, that isn't secret sauce for the Walmart um, that other people will contribute to the open source and actually make their app better. That would be the and idea. That, yeah. So the idea is that a bunch of companies that all have to do the same thing. If they all work together on one really good open source solution instead of each developing their own in-house solution, all of them would benefit. You know, pretty much the only time I ever have something really positive to say about Facebook is when it comes to like some of their development or research and, and things like that. Facebook Area 404 is their new hardware lab that's kind of neat, has some cool things in there that uh, we may see one day, like robotics, internet balloons, and uh, things like that. They talk, they have a video where they brought TechCrunch in to take a tour of the new lab they've built. And they call it Lab 404 because they say they couldn't find any place on Facebook to do this. And then there they're trying things like solar-powered uh, internet rebroadcasting uh, drones and uh, lasers and whatnot. In the video, though, kind of weirdly, they talk about how Mark Zuckerberg isn't allowed in there because he might get hurt. <laughs> Oculus will prototype future versions of the Rift headset and the Surround 360 camera, data infrastructures like Facebook's Open Rack Network Switch Wedge. Yeah, so they're going to do the Open uh, Rack stuff there. A lot of their hardware initiatives are happening in this Area 404. Mm-hmm. With so much hardware on its 10-year roadmap, it makes sense to build a dedicated laboratory. Now, Facebook will be able to build new servers, satellite dishes, and other gizmos much faster. The futuristic white lab... Is I tell you what, it's it's kind of neat if you want to read the article and watch the whole video. ...cutting and bending metal. In fact, Area 404 is so dangerous, Facebook won't let Mark Zuckerberg in. Isn't that weird? <laughs> it's like, well, what about the people that have to work there? It makes me think that but they just don't want them around. <laughs> they, they, well, you just don't want random people stumbling around while you're trying to bend yeah. metal and Especially that Zuckerberg right? guy. That guy just screws things up. Right. He's a klutz. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Even Mark Zuckerberg has problems. So uh, if you'd like to submit a story to the TechSnap Roundup, go over to techsnap.reddit.com and submit the story there. If there was something we didn't talk about, you're like, guys, why didn't you talk about this? It probably didn't make it to the subreddit, and we could use your help. So please, feel free to do that. You can also send us questions. Just go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TechSnap from the dropdown. And we also invite you emphatically to join us live over at jblive.tv, which is live at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is... Uh 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC. Boom, boom. Check it out. Watch the live times over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. That converts it automatically to your live time and also gives you a heads up if we're not going to be live because we pre-recorded or something like that. All listed out right there. You don't have to worry about any of it, though. If you just want the on-demand version because we have an RSS feed, you can just subscribe to that and get it automatically every single stinking week. Just go over to the page at jupiterbroadcasting.com and subscribe there. We have it just under the download links. Okay, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. 